0: Let's pray together one more time before we get to the Word. Father God, I do thank you and praise you for uh, this, this morning of worship. Thank you, God, for the edifying prayers of our men. Thank you for that sweet and encouraging offertory from Ruth. Thank you, God, for the songs that we're able to sing in praise of you and confessing biblical truths up to you and asking that you'd be honored through it all. And as we come to your Word... We ask you, God, that this would be just the, the climax of our worship service, that, that as we feed, as we listen, as we hear, as we preach, that, that the, the light of Christ and the glory of Christ would, would shine brightly, brightly in our hearts, brightly enlightening our minds and causing us, Lord, to, to go from here and being lights in this world so that your glory would be made known. Thank you, Father, so much for this time and we ask that your spirit would would empower me as I preach and empower and enable those who are listening, everyone who's here on the live stream, for their hearts to be changed and and their lives to, to be transformed into the image of Christ, for he is worthy. We pray all these things in his name. Amen. Alright, let's turn to the gospel of Mark. Mark chapter ten. And we're gonna meet a man this morning who's known as the rich young ruler. But if you look in Mark chapter 10, in verse 17, where our text, our passage starts, he's called a man. So where do we get that that title, that phrase? We all are familiar with the rich young ruler, right? Or most of us should be. Well, it comes from the parallel passages. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, they all describe this incident and this man, but in Matthew 19, verse 22, he's called one who owned much property. And in Luke 18, 23, it says, for he was extremely rich. And that's where we get that he's rich. Matthew 19, verse 20 and 22, it says, the young man. And then Luke, back to Luke 18, in verse 18, his passage starts off by saying, a ruler questioned him. And so... Putting all that together is where we get that composite title, The Rich Young Ruler. So we know some things of this man, but not everything. For sure, he was very rich. He owned a lot of property. He didn't have just some possessions or many, but a lot. He was not old, but a young man. It doesn't say exactly how old, but he's a young, rich man. And like I said before from chapter 18 of Luke, verse 18... He calls him a ruler, and this possibly means a ruler or leader of the synagogue, okay? much like Jairus back from Mark chapter 5. He was a synagogue official, or he could be a civic leader of some kind in the community. It's hard to say for certain which one, what kind of ruler he was, but this was either in the religious realm or the political realm. Whatever the case, he was an influential man okay? in a position of some authority he was very wealthy, even at a young age. In other words, he's got a lot going for him. One might even say he's got everything going for him. He has riches, he has youth, he has a noble position, and with all that comes prestige and power and respect, high social standing, everything a man could want. So that's why it's pretty surprising to see him here in Mark. Enough so that in Matthew's account, in the original Greek, it includes the word behold. Behold. It's to grab the reader's attention. It's to grab our attention. Behold. So in Mark chapter 10, as we start, let us behold. And I've titled this sermon, The Poor Rich Young Ruler. And those of us who know the end of the story um, can understand why. But I'm going to read the passage for us. It's Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 22. And once again, if you can... Uh, Please stand as I read God's Word. If you can't, you can just follow along and be seated. That's fine. Mark 10, verses 17 to 22 is our passage. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack Go and sell all you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But at these words, he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. You may be seated. We do have an insert for you this morning, if you're taking notes, and the theme is there as well as on the screen, but... For this passage, I want us just to keep that big picture in mind. Jesus, with love for sinners, calls us to complete submission to him as part of receiving eternal life. Jesus, in love, with love for sinners, calls us to complete submission to him as part of receiving eternal life. And we'll expound on that as we go along. But um, for our outline, I kind of uh, put it this way. How to miss out on eternal life. How to miss out on the treasure of eternal life. So we have three points. We might call them steps. We might even call them strikes. Three strikes and you're out. The first strike is in verses 17 to 18. Be sincere but mistaken about who Jesus is. Be be sincere but, but be mistaken about who Jesus is. Hey, what is this esteemed, rich, young ruler doing here in Mark chapter 10 as Jesus is about to set off on a journey? Hey, presumably, he's headed towards Jerusalem. But it says there in verse 17, as Jesus is doing that, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And we read that and we go, wow, what a great start this man is off to. Right? It's so, incredible start. Picture the scene as Jesus, probably accompanied by the 12, probably, as the crowds tend to do, uh, coming after him as well. All of a sudden, a man runs up to Jesus, Even in our day, uh, this might seem a bit odd, a little bit unusual, but how much more in Bible times, Esteemed men of social status did not come running up in their robes and uh, exposing their legs and, and, and just showing up uh, to someone before a bunch of, bunch of other people. Okay, perhaps if we can um, picture in our day like a, a dignified judge of the court and uh, he's walking uh, and, and, and he sees someone that, that he wants to, you know, uh, just meet and he starts running after him in his robe and just, uh, you know, looking all, and just tearing across the street um, running along the road somewhere. So this man's rushing up to Jesus shows his eagerness, and his earnestness to meet the Lord. He has no shame, right? Mark says next, he knelt before him, right? It doesn't matter, there's a bunch of people around, crowds, disciples, and he kneels before him. This is an act of deep respect. The same word used of the leper back in Mark chapter one, verse 40. The leper just comes before Jesus and falls down on his knees. This is the humble posture of someone who acknowledges the superiority and authority of someone else, and then he asks Jesus. Hey, what a humble thing. He's simply asking a question. Many people who assume that they know everything or think they know everything or they have things all figured out, hey, they don't ask. But this rich, young ruler, with pretty much everything going for him, like I said, and hey, he ain't too proud to ask. So yes, our friend here is off to a wonderful start. And I love how Mark mentions the object of this man's pursuit, don't you? All three times. Okay, he doesn't say Jesus was setting out a journey. A man, uh, a man ran up and knelt and asked him. It says a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him. Okay, the object is clear. It's Jesus. He was headed in the right direction because he had the right source, Jesus himself. So all indications in the text are that this rich young ruler is earnest. He's genuine. He's sincere. And he asked that million-dollar question. Okay, those of us who love to share the gospel, we, we would love for this to happen like every day, right? What teach, what, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? I mean, how often does that, that happen to you where someone just comes up to you and asks you that question? And Jesus said he'll, he'll make us into fishers of men, right? He didn't promise us that the, the fish would come jumping into our boats. And once in a blue moon, uh, this would happen to me back in the days that I studied or read my Bible more, um, more often in public places, like Starbucks, for instance, you know, just sitting there with your Bible open, so sometimes people ask questions, but maybe the closest to this I've encountered was um, at our fall festival here, uh, number, in 2000, I couldn't remember if it was 2018 or 19, but we had the Bible verse table out there for the kids and the parents, and uh, we had them just come and write out a Bible verse. And that was, that was part of the, the activity there. And with that, they would receive a, a candy treat. And so one of the verses that we had was Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Right? And um, so this mom was writing it out, and she's writing it me, And then she asked me, but what does this verse mean? <laughs> it's, it's practically like open door for the gospel, right? So... Um, Anyway, this rich young ruler, he seems like the ideal evangelistic situation. A guy who's well-off, well-respected, but eager and humble enough to come and ask this most important question. Eternal life and how to get to heaven. All things point to him being very sincere. But in that sincerity, what does he call Jesus? He says, good teacher. And we'll get to that momentarily. But I want you to notice his exact words in his question. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And all three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, record it exactly that way. Matthew's account says, what good thing shall I do? So we see that his perspective is one that assumes there's something that he and people in general can do to inherit, to obtain, to come into possession of eternal life. He believes that there's some good thing or things that can be done that will let him secure the blessings of heaven to enter the kingdom of God for eternity. And does this surprise us? Maybe it shouldn't, because this is probably the influence of the scribes and Pharisees that Jesus was going up against, right? That system of works righteousness, that people, and especially the Jewish people, could be righteous enough by strictly keeping the law according to their standards and be found acceptable to God based on how good they are? That's the root meaning of legalism. To be legalistic is to believe that your good works and how well you obey God's commands will somehow make you acceptable to God, acceptable and righteous enough to merit salvation even. So this rich young ruler thinks and hopes that Jesus will tell him, He'll tell him what good thing, okay, besides all the ones that he's already done, what good thing will earn heaven for him? And though he's sincere, he's sincerely wrong about this. We're going to see how in the next point, but let's finish this one first. Verse 18, how Jesus responds to that man's sincere question. Okay. Verse 18, And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So we're getting back to that address, right? So humble, so sincere, comes up and says, Good teacher. And so, Maybe we wouldn't expect Jesus to, to answer that way because um, it seems like a prime opportunity to let the sincere young man know just what, that salvation is not by any good works, as Dave was praying earlier. Obtaining eternal life is only by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But Jesus picks up and points out something that the rich young ruler needs to know. Okay? And it's at least a basic cursory understanding of who he is. When our Lord asks the man, why do you call me good, and says no one is good except God alone, understand this, Jesus is not denying that he's good. <laughs> he's not saying, oh, I'm not good, only God is good, okay? Uh, you shouldn't call me that, that's, that's not what he's saying, okay? As if he's denying his own sinlessness, as if he's denying his own deity. Okay? That would be a, a surface-level, unwarranted view, and those who interpret it uh, that way are sorely mistaken, Rather, Jesus is causing this young man to pause, to pause for a moment, to consider who this good teacher that he's approaching and asking this vital question to actually is. As in, do you know why you are calling me good? Do you realize that only God is good? So rather than denying his own goodness and deity, he's actually implying that he is actually good and he is actually God. This is and has been Mark's picture of Christ, progressively more and more in his gospel as we've been studying these last several months, over a year actually. The Son of Man is the Son of God who is God the Son. And as we've pointed out a number of times now, so many people have a wrong view of who Jesus is. They can be sincere, they can seem like they are spiritually searching, they can appear to be interested in spiritual things but they've not taken seriously the person of Christ. They haven't considered enough who he actually is and who he claimed to be. So people these days, like this rich young ruler back then, they have a lower view of who Jesus is than what and who he actually is. And that's a big problem. Okay? Because remember John 3.16 says, and we all know it, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life, eternal life. So in order to believe in him, you better know at least a little bit about of who Jesus Christ is. His one God's one and only Son. And as we explain the gospel to people, that needs to be a part of it. You need to understand at least He's God in the flesh, fully God, and at least He's one hundred percent man. Fully, truly man. And so how do you how do you put your trust in someone, entrust your eternal soul into someone that you you don't even have any idea who he is. Or you have a lower view of who he is than what is actually his claim and what he says over and over and over in the Gospels. And so if we're, anybody, are, are treating Jesus like merely a good teacher or a good rabbi or a good spiritual leader, okay, rather than God in the flesh, okay, rather than um, just who he is, they're, they're not taking him at his word, and they're not actually believing in him. So obviously, if he's lying about any of that, or if he's wrong about that, okay, a liar and a lunatic cannot be considered a good teacher or a good moral spiritual leader. And so I'm not going to go over the verses that you know where Jesus claims clearly that he is God. Um, we've been over that a number of times, but... Let me quote uh, Norman Geisler here. He writes, quote, Jesus did not deny he was God to the young ruler. He simply asked him to examine the implications of what he was saying. In effect, Jesus was saying to him, Do you realize what you are saying when you call me good? Are you saying I am God? The young man did not realize the implications of what he was saying. Thus, Jesus was forcing him to a very uncomfortable dilemma. Either Jesus was good and God, or else he was bad and man. A good God or a bad man, but not merely a good man. Those are the real alternatives with regard to Christ. For no good man would claim to be God when he was not. The liberal's view of Christ, who was only a good moral teacher but not God, is a figment of human imagination. End quote. And this is the world, as I've shared with you before. This is the world, the church world, churchianity world that I grew up in. A low, lower view of who Jesus Christ actually is. And it's just good spiritual leader. Be kind. So that's step one or strike one of missing out on eternal life. Be sincere but mistaken about who Jesus actually is. Strike two is in verses 19 and 20. Be sincerely mistaken about your goodness be sincerely mistaken about your own goodness jesus goes on in verse 19 by saying you know the commandments do not murder do not commit adultery do not steal do not bear false witness do not defraud honor your father and mother and then the man says to him teacher i have kept all these things from youth up as we see jesus brings god's law to bear to help this man see that no one is good, and no one has kept the law like they should have, not even this high-achieving, uber-accomplished, highly esteemed, rich young ruler. The Lord brings out five commandments that the man would know and we should know. They're part of the second half of the Ten Commandments, Ten Commandments, a.k.a. the Decalogue, the Ten Words, Ten Commands, And the second half of the Decalogue are the more horizontal ones, right? The ones that are focused on love for neighbor. Just so everybody knows here, the first four are are more vertical, okay? Love for God, and the the last six are more horizontal. Footnote, interestingly, instead of including the Tenth Commandment, some of you may have been wondering, why didn't Jesus add, uh, you shall not covet? Because Jesus says, do not defraud, Right? which some of you in your Bibles is not in all capitals, okay? which means it's not quoting the Old Testament. It's not quoting the Ten Commandments. Do not defraud there because it's not one of the Ten Commandments. And so why would Jesus put that one in instead of the actual Tenth Commandment, which is you shall not covet? Well, perhaps the Lord knows that this wealthy man who has pretty much everything doesn't struggle much with covetousness, being exceedingly rich. But it's possible that in the process of gaining many possessions and wealth, that he's maybe defrauded others to gain all that stuff. Yeah, that seems to be a common pattern amongst not all, but some very wealthy people. Yeah, they, they gain their money by defrauding, right? By, by taking advantage of others, by robbing others who, who uh, maybe they don't have as much or maybe they don't know as much. And so they don't know, so we'll just we'll take advantage of it, make more money, more profit. And so um, I don't know for sure if that's what Jesus was alluding to, but it could be. And there have been others who suggest that thing, though, that this was like a special warning to this rich man. In any case, the Lord holds up God's law as part of his response to the man who asks what he must do to inherit eternal life. And pointing him to see his sinfulness, his breaking of the law, like, well, you know what God commands, how's that going? And his answer is, teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. In other words, well, it's actually going pretty okay. I've done, I've done goods ever since my youth. Since my early days, I've obeyed all these commandments. And I, I believe this man was still being sincere here. A okay, prideful, yes, but genuine, genuine in his answer. And it's possible that he did, for the most part, keep these commandments, at least on the outside. you okay, know, general way i mean it's possible it might even be true when you look at them look what, and this is commandment six on down right Commandment number two, shall not murder he he probably didn't kill anybody you shall not commit adultery okay maybe he didn't commit adultery according to the law it doesn't say if he's married or not okay according to the outward external law do not steal maybe he didn't steal from anyone technically do not bear false witness. Okay, that one's a little tougher. <laughs> that one's a little tougher to say. Well, maybe he did keep it, right? right maybe, maybe he didn't tell any huge lies. Do not defraud. Well, we talked about that one. Okay, may or may not be the case with him. Honor your father and mother. Right? Maybe, maybe in general, for the most part, he was an obedient youth. And on up, he continued to honor them. Maybe he was like the Apostle Paul before he was converted. The Apostle Paul described himself in Philippians 3.6. He says, As to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. He's talking about himself, Philippians 3.6. Maybe this rich young ruler didn't hear Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, okay, or Jesus' other teachings. Okay, that obedience to God's law didn't just mean on the outside, okay, as the Pharisees seemed to emphasize, but keeping these laws included what's on the inside, the real meaning of the commandments. And once again, as Dave kindly read to us in Matthew chapter 5, just very briefly, remember, Matthew 5:21. this is right after he says, your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. He says in verse 21, you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court it says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. So far, Well, maybe he didn't hear that. Maybe he didn't understand that. How about the next one, verse 27? You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Maybe he didn't get that one. Verse 33, again, you have heard the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, or by earth, or by Jerusalem, nor shall you make an oath by your head. Verse 37, but let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil. So the point is this, folks. The rich young ruler was going by his own standard. Probably learned, once again, through the Pharisaical religious system. His own standard of keeping the law his own standard of goodness. He believed himself to be doing good, of being good. After all, he's kept all those, all the ones that Jesus mentioned when he asked him. He was judging himself by this lower standard of God's law, God's word, God's holiness. And so so he had a higher view of his own goodness, and that's what happens every time, folks. When we have a lower view of, of Scripture, of God, of his holiness, of his word, we have a, an elevated view of our own goodness. In his eyes, he thinks he has kept all the ones that Jesus mentioned. I've done all that. He asked in Matthew, so what am I still lacking? Yeah, yeah, I've done all those. So once again, I think he's sincere in that assertion. Okay? Prideful, yes. And once again, he's, he's sincerely wrong. He's mistaken about his own goodness. He's not as good as he thinks. And that's the sin of pride. It's the sin of pride. As I've shared many times before, this is the case with almost everyone that I've attempted to share the gospel with, witnessing to. Everyone admits that they're not perfect, but pretty much all people consider themselves to be good. And why is that? It's because they're comparing themselves with other people, and they're judging themselves according to their own standard of goodness. I haven't haven't murdered anyone. I, I, I try not to hate. I don't tell any really huge lies. I try to be kind and loving. I don't want to hurt people. I believe it's good to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I'm doing okay compared to most people. At least I'm trying. If there's any unbelieving folks here today, Like with the rich young ruler, that's a fatal error. If that's your perspective, that's your mindset this morning, it's a fatal error because God is not going to judge you based on your standard of goodness. He's going to judge you based on his own standard of goodness. He's the one who makes that. He's the source of that. This is perfect holiness we're talking about, as Jesus himself said, right? Matthew 5, 48, at the end of that passage that was read in our scripture reading this morning, it culminates in verse 48, Jesus saying, Therefore, you shall be what? You shall be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Hey, that's God's standard of, of good. We have, we have such a low standard of good. First Peter 1.16, Peter, one of the 12 who's here, writes, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And he's quoting the Old Testament. Once again, God's standard. James two verse ten to remind you all, James writes, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. And it's that single BB gun pellet shot into a window. And it it, it, it shatters the whole thing. It, it cracks and it, it shatters everything. You haven't just dented one part of the window. The, the whole thing is broken. It's no longer good. Proverbs 16, verse 2 says, all the ways of a man are clean in his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motives. See, it's that internal, external thing. It's pride, even idolatry, okay, which is what happens a lot. Right? We're making up a God, we're creating a God in our own image or in our own standard of, of what's good and who we're comfortable with. This makes us think that we're better than we are. And of course, this whole self-esteem and self-love movement that has swept our entire culture today, it feeds that prideful perspective. Oh, no, you're good. You're good. So this young man thinks he is such, and he is probably good according to the society's standard, according to the Pharisees' external standard. He looks good. He's rich, which is a good sign, Right? Wealth is a sign of God's favor and blessing, isn't it? He holds a position of authority, influence, even as a young man. He's respectful. As he comes to Jesus, he's respected. All that's good, but he's sincerely mistaken about true goodness. And that was the critical problem and issue back then, and it's a critical problem and issue today with many, 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 many people who don't know the Lord. So that's strike two in how to miss out on eternal life. Be sincerely mistaken about your own goodness. The last strike is this. Be unwilling to surrender your earthly treasures to follow Jesus as your Savior and Lord. Be unwilling to surrender your earthly treasures to follow Jesus as your Savior and Lord. This is the last two verses and last point. Verse 21 It says, looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him. I just want to pause for a moment. Don't you just love the very personal nature of that? Notice how Mark writes it here. There's no doubt who Jesus was focused on. Just as there was no doubt who this man was coming up to, the object. Look, it says, looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him. Mark is the only one who includes that three times. What love the Lord has for this sincerely mistaken, rich young man. And okay, This guy is mistaken about who Jesus is. He's mistaken about his own goodness. And they're not just mistakes. Let me make that clear, like, oops, made a mistake. No, it's ultimately rooted in the sin of pride, okay, which God hates. It's an abomination to him. And yet, Jesus loves this man. He felt a love for him. Okay, so in this deep love Of Jesus, we should really capture our hearts. The Lord lowers the boom, so to speak. And He gets to the truth. He goes straight to the heart of this man. Verse 21, second part of it. One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. This is where the rubber meets the road. He goes along with the man's assertion that he's kept those commandments. But then he says, okay, here's one thing that you're missing. You want to know what to do for eternal life? Go and sell everything you have and give that money to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven. Importantly, Jesus adds, and then come, follow me. So this is uh, his answer to the man's question basically whittles down to a double command, right? Get rid of all your stuff and follow me. So verse 22 gives us his response. But at these words, he was saddened. and He went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. And what started off so promising, so wonderful for this young man, so eager, so sincere, it ends with this deep sorrow, much sadness. He's, he's crestfallen at Jesus' words. And it's because he was not willing to give up what was most precious to him, his money and possessions, in order to follow Christ. And he may have thought he was good. Again, externally, he was keeping those five horizontal commandments, it seems. But then our loving Lord challenges him by telling him to be rid of all his earthly treasure for the eternal treasure of heaven. Essentially, what is Jesus doing here? Pointing him back to to the first part of the Ten Commandments, right? The vertical ones. The very first commandment, in fact, is in Exodus 20, you shall have no other gods before me. Love for God, you shall have no other gods besides me. Hebert notes, quote, The one thing lacking is the all important thing, a single hearted devotion to God, obedience to the first of the Ten Commandments. End quote. So some of us are wondering and scratching our heads a little bit and asking, wait, is Jesus now trying to say that salvation can be earned by good works? Hey, like selling all your stuff and giving to the poor? That's a fair question. The answer, of course, is no, that's not what he's saying. He's not saying doing that will earn this rich young ruler his way into heaven. But but the man's willingness to obey Jesus' commands here would show that the man had repented of his idolatry, which was money and wealth, and was turning to and trusting in God. In essence, in an indirect way, Jesus is saying, you've got to trust me. You've got to have faith in God. It would, be evidence, it would be evidence that his faith was in God rather than in his things. As Jesus said earlier, Matthew 5, verse 24, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. And let me just make clear to everyone that this is not a one-size-fits-all command. Hebert, once again, helpfully writes, while Jesus does not always make this demand on people, okay, like to, to give all your stuff away and, and, and um, give the money to the poor, he doesn't make it on all people, but he always demands that the seeker must give up that which has usurped the place of God in his life. There are other idols in men's hearts besides wealth. End quote. You hear me? As for this rich young man, that's, that's what his thing was, his earthly treasure. It right? there, there was more valuable than eternity, eternal treasure. His turning away shows what we saw earlier. Okay? He doesn't understand who Jesus is as God. He's not willing to leave his stuff to follow him. He rejects Jesus' love and lordship here. He's not trusting in him. He's asking for salvation, the way to eternal life. And Jesus says, I am the way. He is the truth. He is that life. He says, come follow me. And take note of this, that Jesus' demand that this rich young ruler follow him, it's a a present active command. Present tense, ongoing, continual. Be following me. So it's an invite and a command. It's a life of ongoing, continuous fellowship with the Lord, following him. He is the way, so you follow him. You submit to him, to believe in him as Savior and Lord. This is the only way. To eternal life. Let me just give you a few verses as far as Jesus' lordship. John 6, verse 68 and 69. Peter asked that question, right? Lord, to whom shall we go? Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. The Holy One of God. So Peter is putting it all together there. Lord, Holy One of God, Son of God, The Christ, Messiah, God the Son. So Acts 16, verse 31, they proclaim as they're preaching, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And of course, the Romans 10, verse 9, Paul will write later, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. See, Strike strike three was a, a big swing and miss for the rich young ruler. He was already down two strikes. This was the knockout. His wealth was what he served. That's what he worshipped. His money, possessions were his idol. Like in Lord of the Rings, right? My precious. He had it, and it had him. Riches and all that comes with it. That's what was holding him tightly in its grip and what he was holding on to tightly with his grip. Even tighter, we might say. He would not and could not let it go, even for Jesus, even for eternal life with God. So let's end this point with um, some application and implications. Application, like the rich young ruler, there's earthly treasures that a lot of folks are not willing to give up. Unbelievers who don't believe in Christ, they don't want to submit their lives to his lordship, they don't want a God to tell them how they're supposed to live. And many unbelievers I know have asked this question. Okay? They, they have this issue What if I become a Christian? They think, what will I have to give up? Yeah, I think when I, when I was just considering things and being drawn to the Lord, that question popped up in my own mind years ago before I was saved. Will I have to give up my, my money? Will I have to give up my riches? Do I have to give offerings to the church? Do I need to start giving money to charities? And many don't want to do that. Some people, it's not the, the, the money necessarily. With some, it's the, the lifestyle. Hobbies. i got to give up hobbies now? Yeah, that one's pretty expensive. I, I, I become a Christian. i got to give it up. Vacations. Things of convenience that comes with affluence. And in today's day, we're pretty spoiled, folks. And we think we need a lot more than we need. Will I have to give up my immoral relationship? My girlfriend? My boyfriend? My promiscuous ways? I've got to stop watching porn? Okay, some people think about this when they're presented with the gospel. Will I have to stop being a homosexual? Some, some people ask, uh, wait, become a, do I have to become a Republican? Or will I need to become religious now? i got to go to church every Sunday? Become one of those people? The issue here is what it means to follow Jesus as Lord. To receive and believe in him as personal Savior and Lord. To know him as such, to love him above all that you hold dear on this earth. He's going to make the necessary changes as you learn his word. So, unbelieving friend, we shouldn't necessarily get caught up in all that consider Christ that's what he he calls you to do he doesn't want your money necessarily he doesn't want your stuff necessarily he doesn't want you to give up all this He, he wants your heart he wants your entire heart and where your treasure is there your heart will be also submitting your life to him the cost of being his disciple is like he said it's to deny yourself take up your cross daily and follow him Maybe we were in it, right? Just a few months ago now, probably, Mark 8, verse 34. Once again, I call this young, wealthy man the, the poor, rich, young ruler because in his rejection of Christ's love and lordship, he's given up the priceless riches of eternity, okay, the unsurpassing riches, as Paul says, of knowing Christ. So believers, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, or those who are kind of seemingly on the fence, I think this is a good gut check. Those of you who maybe just have misplaced priorities these days, good gut check of things of the world that we might be holding on to with a little bit too tight of a grip. What would your response be to, to Jesus' words here? Okay, when, when he tells the, this young rich guy, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give it to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Once again, this is not one size fits all, so you would have to identify your most prized possession, what you hold most dear on this earth, what you value most. Are you willing to sacrifice for his sake? Are you willing to do what he says to do for his sake because he's your personal savior and lord? Again, For some people, it's stuff like security, comfort, those conveniences. Just like unbelievers, we can be tempted towards that. For some, it's career, work, money that comes with that. All the focus is there. For others, it's entertainment, hobbies. Maybe some of our younger folks are more challenged with that. Art, music, whatever. And None of these are sinful things necessarily, folks, right? For some people, it's family. We can make family an idol. I'm a pastor. I can make ministry an idol. So the question is, do you own these things or do they own you? Right? Are you, are, like, they've got you? Or, or do, you, do you have them and you, you hold on to them with a loose grip? You can put all that stuff in its place because you, your Lord is Jesus. You worship and serve God that's been your conviction. You were saved. You were sanctified. You were washed. Now you're walking with him. Let me just say really quickly for others, it's, you know, it even, like, is, is my, my Christian liberty. That's, that's the most precious thing. Well, I've got, I've got freedom now. I'm saved. So I, I can do these things, right? It's my rights. It's our entitlement age. Again, with other people, it's my, my sexuality, Right, My fornication, my homosexuality. Right? There, there's such thing as a gay Christian? Well, according to a lot of people in evangelicalism today, there is. Biblically, there's not. In my political allegiance, my identity in politics, right? that's why it's called identity politics, am I willing to, to give that up? For others, it's ethnicity, race. They, they put that above who they are in Christ. So once again, Mark 8, 35 and 36. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? He okay, forfeit eternity. Jesus' words. So to wrap this up, I hope we are remembering the theme and we're understanding the, the big picture today once again. And I included Jesus' love because Mark puts that there. Jesus felt a love for this man. And so, Jesus, in love for sinners, calls us to complete submission to him as part of receiving eternal life. Right, once again, that, that um, just not earning by, by works or by doing what, what he says to the rich young ruler, that's not it. But as we submit, to Christ, confess him as our Lord, believe in him as our Savior. This is the treasure of eternal life, and we don't want to miss out on it. So the account of the poor, rich, young ruler, if he didn't repent, if he didn't submit, if he didn't turn from his ways, he's going to receive his just judgment. Eternal hell, instead of what he was asking directions to. Eternal life. Have you... Everyone here, have you submitted your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, believing on him and trusting his precious promises of salvation? A.W. Pink, he wrote, It is the sovereign decree of heaven that nothing can make sinners truly happy, but God in Christ, end quote. And it's in his stunning grace that God provides that way of eternal life and joy through the sending of his only Son, who died on a cross so that we might truly live. And I pray that not one precious soul in this church today or is listening on the live stream would miss out on the greatest treasure of all, the greatest treasure imaginable that God holds out to us this morning in his Son, one and only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. Please pray with me. Lord, thank you for your words and your all-knowing, all-wise interaction with this rich young ruler. Thank you for showing us with these strikes that were against him the way to miss out on eternal life. But thank you for the good news which tells us simply how to have eternal life, that, that treasure of knowing you and being with you forever. Thank you by simple, genuine repentance and trust in Christ, who he is and what he's done on the cross on behalf of us, that as we confess him as our Lord and believe that he's raised from the dead, we will receive your precious promise of salvation. Thank you for that free gift, because the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Thank you that we can rejoice as believers in that gospel truth, and we can proclaim it so even those who are around us today, perhaps even in this worship service. In love, we can continue to faithfully proclaim that. And we pray, God, that as we do, souls would be one for your glory, for your sake, and our joy as your faithful disciples would increase. Thank you, God, so much for, for Christ, the living word, and for the written word we just heard. In his precious name we pray, amen.